Thank you for choosing this podcast for the BJSM community. This week, we're excited to share an AMSSM sports medcast with Drs. Mimi Riley and Scott Young, discussing their favourite sports medicine articles from 2018. To hear about all of the 10 articles, please visit the AMSSM's website, which can be found in the show notes. Let's dive straight into the conversation. Thank you for joining us today and please enjoy. Scott, take it away with number one. Let's kick it off here. Number one is a 10-year follow-up after standardized treatment for Achilles tendinopathy by Finn Johansson and colleagues. It was published in the BMJ Open Sport and Exercise Medicine. This is a great study. This is a 10-year follow-up, actually, from a study the authors did back in 2004-2005, where they looked at 93 patients with Achilles tendinopathy. They took those patients, they modified their activity level, you know, decreased running, decreased jumping, etc., They gave them concentric and eccentric exercises, some calf stretching, and then one to three ultrasound-guided lidocaine and corticosteroid injections. Now, those injections were specifically to facilitate rehab as needed. Of those 93 patients, 54 had one injection, 13 had two injections, and then two of the patients actually had three injections. So now back to the current study, this is a 10-year look at those 93 patients and seeing how they fared. They were able to get a hold of 77 of the participants, 19 by phone and 58 by actual in-person examination, which is pretty remarkable, I think. Um, 76% of those folks that they were able to get in touch with had returned to almost normal pre-injury levels, anywhere between 75 and 100% pre-injury level of activity, which is great. 16% had surgery and is not surprising uh, more of those people that had surgery had insertional tendinopathy rather than mid-substance. So they had three tendon ruptures total out of that group, one in each group. So one person that had a tendon rupture actually had zero injections as a part of the study, but they had six injections prior to entry into the study, which probably had something to do with it. And then one of the individuals that had one injection had a tendon rupture, and that was years after the study was complete. And then one person that had two injections also had an Achilles tendon rupture. And that was, uh, again, several years after the study was complete. So really thought not to be due to the injections they received during the study. And a couple of interesting points about this, uh, the result, this 10-year look at these folks. One of them is they did ultrasound measurements of the tendon thickness. And they found that even in the folks that had improved significantly or even resolved, at 10 years, had essentially unchanged tendon thickness. And the authors also make a good point when it comes to the injection process is that you know corticosteroids might in, uh, reduce the warning signals associated with worsening tendon issues and could cause too rapid progression in some of those exercises, which could increase the risk of rupture. So you got to be careful if you're thinking about using these corticosteroid injections in Achilles tendinopathy, you got to be careful about the exercise progression. So In summary, looking at this 10-year follow-up, Achilles tendinopathy treated with activity modification, exercises, and limited use of steroid injections to facilitate rehabilitation had a pretty good 10-year outcome with about 76% of the participants getting pretty close to pre-injury levels without risk of, uh, or increased risk of tendon rupture. Thanks for a great summary, Scott. For the next one, I'm going to talk about uh, Benjamin Wheatley and colleagues' article in the 
Journal of American Academy of Orthopedic Surgery titled The Effect of NSAIDs on Bone Healing Rates, a Meta-Analysis. This was an interesting meta-analysis that included 16 studies of adults and children with fractures, and it looked at the duration and dose of their NSAID exposure, patient age, sex, bone involved, and the length of follow-up. They did a subgroup analysis of four of the studies that only had pediatric patients as well. The results of the meta-analysis showed that NSAID exposure increased delayed union or non-union. However, it appeared to be related to age as no effect was noted in the pediatric population. They did an additional subgroup analysis, and that showed that low NSAID dose or short duration of NSAID exposure did not appear to affect union rates. There were no differential effects from NSAIDs noted based on the type of bone, such as long bone, long bone versus spine, as previous studies have suggested. One of the biggest limitations that was noted in this study is that there was a bimodal age distribution of the study participants with a notable gap in the 18 to 35-year-old age group. So I thought that this made it a little bit less generalizable to our young adult patients. All that being said, my personal takeaway from this one is to avoid NSAIDs for adult patients with fractures at an increased risk of non-union or delayed union, or even altogether if possible. Glucocorticoid injections for greater trochanteric pain syndrome, a randomized, double-blind, placebo-controlled trial aptly termed the gluteal trial by Michael John Nissen and colleagues and published in Clinical Rheumatology. This study looked at lateral hip pain. Patients that presented with lateral hip pain for greater than a month had greater than 4 out of 10 pain and is that typical greater trochanteric pain syndrome stuff. So, you know, it's going to be tender to um, around the greater trochanter, easily reproduced by palpation, sort of the classic symptoms. And what they did is they injected either saline or a mixture of lidocaine and betamethasone. And the outcome they were looking at is the pain intensity at four weeks. Now, with these patients, they were not allowed to have physiotherapy, hydrotherapy, or anything else until that four-week appointment. So this was pretty strict, just injections. They had a lot of trouble recruiting patients for this study. It looks like after about three years, they had to do an interim analysis due to recruitment issues. And at that time, they decided to cease the study due to futility. During that three-year process, they screened 80 patients and recruited 46 of them. A lot of them just didn't meet the inclusion or exclusion criteria and a bunch of them just didn't want to be a part of that placebo arm. So 21 patients were treated with the lidocaine betamethasone injection, and then 25 of them had the saline injection. Interestingly, this population that they ended up recruiting was greater than 80% female, and the mean age was in the late 50s, 58. So the results showed no significant difference, but maybe a trend towards improvement in the intervention group. And they had pretty much an equal number of responders in each group, both the placebo and the steroid group. And interestingly, they had 12 patients that were considered cured at four weeks, cured being zero or one out of 10 pain, and most of those patients were in the placebo group. So what I get out of this is, you know, it's a fairly select population, mostly female in the late 50s, but corticosteroid in isolation is really unlikely to help at four weeks. And while this is a somewhat select population, I think these results probably represent the efficacy of this treatment. This is, of course, me editorializing, 
But I think injection alone for greater trochanteric pain syndrome or gluteal tendinopathy is probably not going to do a lot in four weeks. It's going to take a little bit more than that, maybe some rehab, et cetera, but just the injection is probably not the best answer. All right. Thanks, Scott. So I have Dr. John J. Letty and colleagues article called Exercise as Medicine for Concussion that was published in Current Sports Medicine Reports. So I'm sure everyone listening is familiar with the paradigm of both physical and cognitive rest until an athlete has complete symptom reduction resolution from sports-related concussion. This article by Letty et al. in Sports Medicine Reports reviews recent observational and experimental data showing that sub-threshold aerobic exercise normalizes the cerebrovascular physiological dysfunction that's sustained in concussion and is an effective treatment for patients with this sports-related concussion. Sub-threshold exercise may also restore function in patients with persistent post-concussive symptoms, which is often a challenge for us to treat. The authors recommend utilizing the Buffalo Concussion Treadmill Test, and if unable to walk or run, the Buffalo Concussion Bike Test, to not only evaluate exercise tolerance after concussion, but to actually write the prescription dosage for sub-threshold exercise to safely speed recovery. They explain these tests in detail in the article, and they present evidence that this sub-threshold exercise is an effective treatment even in the acute recovery phase, and it may help reduce the incidence of those persistent post-concussive symptoms. Importantly, the recommendations in this article are all non-pharmacologic ways to help safely speed recovery and prevent those persistent post-concussive symptoms. Not surprisingly, it also recommended other forms of exercise, such as cervical, vestibular, and vision therapies as appropriate in the exercise prescription for those uh, concussive symptoms. For me, this article added more evidence to exercise post-concussion and a useful how-to approach for treating a common diagnosis in the training room or sports med clinic. I highly suggest you check it out. All right, to close it out for number 10, I'll present Victor A. Vandergraaf and colleagues' article from JAMA titled The Effect of Early Surgery Versus Physical Therapy on Knee Function Among Patients with Non-Obstructive Meniscal Tears, the Escape Randomized Clinical Trial. So why why are we bringing up another article about physical therapy versus meniscal tear for surgery? Well, this article is important because, one, degenerative meniscal tears are common. Up to 60% of adults over age 60 have them. Many of them don't even have knee pain. And two, arthroscopic partial meniscectomy is among the most frequently performed procedure in orthopedic surgery. And three, there are at least six other RCTs which showed no difference between arthroscopic meniscal surgery compared with either PT or sham surgery in patients with confirmed meniscal tears, but we still do it. So this study, well, those, those other six studies were designed to look at superiority and were fairly small. So in total, the M for all six of those other RCTs um, was about 838. But with that being said, there's been no decline in arthroscopic meniscal surgeries, as I mentioned. So this new article is a non-inferiority, multi-centered RCT, that looked at 45 to 70 year old patients in the Netherlands from nine different centers, all of whom had non-obstructive meniscal tears and followed them out for 24 months. Of the 321 participants in the study, they were randomly assigned to either an arthroscopic partial meniscectomy, so there are N of 159 for that, 
or a predefined physical therapy protocol of which there were 162 participants. The PT protocol consisted of about 16 sessions of exercise therapy over eight weeks and was focused on coordination and closed kinetic chain strength exercises. The primary outcome they were looking at was a change in patient-reported knee function, and they measured this using the International Knee Documentation Committee subjective knee form. This study um, had, as I mentioned, 321 patients. Their mean age was 58, and there was a perfect split of 50-50 for male and female participants. A pretty good amount of them actually completed the trial at 90%, and the authors utilized an intention-to-treat analysis. So, not surprisingly, the results of the study were in line with previous study results. Non-inferiority was demonstrated for the overall between-group differences in patient-reported knee function over a 24-month follow-up period. 47 of the participants, which is about 29% from the physical therapy group, ultimately did have meniscal surgery, which suggested that not all patients treated with PT were satisfied with their results. Eight patients who were randomized to the surgical group didn't have their surgery. And when you look at adverse events in both groups, the most frequently reported adverse event was repeat surgery. Um, They had three in the surgical group and one in the PT group who had a repeat surgery and additional outpatient visits for knee pain. So there were six in the surgical group and two in the PT group who had additional outpatient visits for knee pain. Ultimately, my takeaway from this article is to encourage patients to put in the work with physical therapy before seeking surgical consultation. What are your thoughts on that, Scott? Yeah, I agree. And honestly, part of what I take away from this, I think most of these patients, I tell them that surgery is probably not going to be that useful, but I don't, I don't think that's necessarily the right answer all the time. And this might crack the door a little bit for me on the potential for surgery if they're failing that physical therapy. So it's always going to be mm-hmm. my... Not always, but mostly my first go-to, I would say. But I think if they're failing, rather than keep pushing them in that direction, uh, it's not necessarily inappropriate to have them get a surgical evaluation, depending on what's going on. You've been listening to an AMSSM sports medcast with Drs. Mimi Raleigh and Scott Young. If you enjoyed this podcast, please share it with friends or leave us a review wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen to a new clinically relevant BJSM podcast every Friday and there's no better place to find them than on the BJSM app. As always, we hope you have a physically active day.